Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Thank My you. name is... Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping the gun here. <laughs> that was Shandavi Saraswati, <laughs> who, is, who is my guest today. Buddha at the Gas Pump, let me just say, is a uh, ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done a little over 650 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. And also, while you're there, check the various menus on the site, and you'll find some interesting things. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and a page that explains some alternatives to PayPal. So Shambhavi, whose name I just mentioned, is the spiritual director of Jayakula, a nonprofit organization offering opportunities to learn and practice in the traditions of Trika Shaivism and Zogchen. 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 So there's three questions in that sentence. What does Jayakula mean? Jayakula, well, Jaya means victory, and Kula literally means family in Sanskrit. It's a very special word, though, in the tradition of Trika Shaivism. If we look on the most micro level, it means the family of practitioners working with a particular teacher. So it's a victorious family of practitioners. Right. But if we look on the macrocosmic level, it means the family of all beings and things, all worlds, all creatures. And so the idea is that we graduate from a limited family to that larger unlimited family. And then it means victory to everything and everyone. Great. Yeah, there's that famous saying, Satyame Vijayate, which means truth alone is victorious. And uh, mm-hmm. and then there's that other Sanskrit saying, which, which is, the world is my family. So you mm-hmm. got both of those things in there. And then another term that we just brought up is Trikas Shaivism. Is that the same as Kashmir Shaivism? It is. It is. Okay. Yeah. Trika, does that mean three something? Trika is a reference to threes and the proliferation of threes in the tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the siddhas and scholars of the tradition, Nabhinavagupta, said that Trika was Shiva, Shakti, and their unison. Okay. So both duality and non-duality together. Yeah. And then Zogchen, pronounce it again? Zogchen. I've heard it a million times, I just don't pronounce it right. And that is, how does that fit in? Well, Trika Shaivism and Dzogchen have both historical commonalities. They both kind of grew up along the Silk Road, and there was lots of exchange. They're very similar in their view and in some of their most core practices. They also have a lot of esoteric connections that I've discovered practicing in both of those traditions. But I started practicing in Trika Shaivism, and then one of my teachers suggested that I go study with Namkai Norbu Rinpoche, a Dzogchen teacher. And I just stayed practicing with him and studying with him for many years and discovering that those two traditions are really very, very similar in their view and practices. Would it be true to say that Kashmir Shaivism is more aligned or associated with Hinduism and Dzogchen is more aligned with Buddhism in some way, despite their similarities? I would say that each of those traditions, by their own self-report, do not align with Hinduism in the case of Trika or Buddhism in the case of Dzogchen. Okay. 
So there's some sense that each of them has a self-identity or considers themselves to be somewhat different or oppositional to the more mainstream traditions in their native countries. Not that there aren't similarities, and that's a long discussion of what those similarities are. For instance, historically, how Trika has been practiced and promoted by uh, teachers and scholars who were also practicing Vedanta, and the same for Dzogchen in Tibet. But they both each have an oppositional stance that they take also to those indigenous traditions. Okay. So continuing with your bio, you have studied meditation with teachers in the Kagyu and Ying, you Nyingma, Nyingma. <laughs> <laughs> traditions, which are what in brief? Oh, those are both Tibetan Buddhist traditions. So there's a kind of meditation that is done with open eyes. And I'm sure you know about that. Basically, the instruction for that kind of meditation is are called pointing out instructions. They're instructions for how to do something that is impossible to give an instruction for. So the pointing out instructions are different or slightly different in each tradition. And one of my teachers who thought I would be a good meditation teacher told me to go around and study this particular kind of meditation with as many different teachers as I possibly could and learn all of the different pointing out instructions. And so that's what I did. Good. And your root guru is an Andamaima, and mm-hmm. people may remember her from Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi. And of course, she's very well known in her own right. And there's an interesting story about how you came to regard her as your root guru, which we'll get into in a minute. Shambhavi emphasizes direct encounters with the wisdom of the heart through the more explicitly devotional teachings and practices of Trikas Shaivism and Dzogchen. In addition to offering teachings in spiritual practice and view, you are trained as a Jyotishi and diviner. At one time, you taught at Northwestern University. You left academia in 2004 to devote yourself to practice writing and teaching in your spiritual traditions. Okay. Someone named Joanne from Seattle asked, have you actually met Ananda Maima? And I gather from reading your website that you did not meet her in the flesh. And then Joanne would like to know, how did you decide that she is your teacher? And you have a great story on your website about your experience on her balcony in Varanasi. So if you feel like it's not too soon to go into that whole story, and you let's do it. Sure. The way that I met her was kind of kicking and screaming. <laughs> She started coming in my dreams, and I had been taught by my other teachers that saying or thinking that a dead person is your guru is a very dangerous road to embark on. And yeah, I, really I think it was Adi Da who said, dead gurus don't kick ass or something. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was very good advice, and I really understood that teaching. And so when Ma started coming in my dreams, I was suspicious of myself I was suspicious of her <laughs> and I would say are you really not in my mind she would say something like yes I'm ma and I'd go there are lots of ma's which ma <laughs> you had obviously heard of her before so when she started coming in your dreams it wasn't like you didn't know who this was right I had seen pictures of her I hadn't yeah. read any of her teachings and when she started coming in your dreams how vivid and real was that extremely vivid what would happen was 
something would go on in the dream. And then when I woke up the next morning, I would be in an extraordinary condition, feeling completely re-embodied in some way. And that seemed to be the hallmark of what are sometimes called true dreams, you know, as opposed to just karmic churning, uh, just something just felt clarified and um, very different when I would wake up from those dreams. And the most profound experience I've ever had was in what one might call a dream, but it didn't seem like a dream. It was just so, mm-hmm. oh man, just blew me away. After those yeah, dreams, I went to India for the first time. And I went to Nandamayama's ashram, still feeling very suspicious of myself and whatever was happening. There was a young man who worked full-time doing seva at the ashram who greeted visitors. And he was having a conversation with me. And he referred to Ma as my guru. And I said, she's not my guru. And then he just laughed at me. I didn't really understand why he was laughing at me. I still don't understand why he was laughing at me. But in any case... He said to me then, you should go up on this balcony. Ma used to teach there. And he said, Westerners never go up there. I don't know why they don't go up there, but you should go up there. So I went and I just, I walked up these beautiful stairs that overlook the Ganga. And I literally put one foot on the balcony and it was like the sky just opened up. And this grace just started pouring into me. And the sky turned into an ocean of intelligence and compassion and clarity. And it was just brilliance that was just everywhere in the sky and flooding my whole body. And I just fell down on my knees and started weeping. And I recognized that this was Ma, like this is who she really was. Another hallmark of these kind of experiences is that they aren't just experiences. They impart understanding, they impart wisdom to you. And it was the very first time when this happened, I was, you know, in my early 40s. So I'd already been practicing for a long time. It was the first time I really understood what God meant. It was the first time I understood what reality actually was. Like she revealed to me the nature of reality in that moment, or it was actually a couple hours that went on. So the definition of guru is the one that reveals the nature of reality to you. Nice. And after that point, I could not deny whatever that was and whatever name you wanted to give that. And I call that Ma. It was just undeniable that this was guru for me. And, and I still felt some embarrassment. And it was many years before I ever admitted to anyone that this had happened. <laughs> It was kind of funny because I thought people would think I was kind of new agey or God realmy or something. But then I realized, no, they're actually going to believe me and think I'm something really special. And that might even be worse. So, (laughs) so I kept it to myself for a while, but then eventually I just came out more about it. What's your best take on the actual mechanics of a thing like that? Ma was said to be an avatar, so that, that's part of the mix. But there have been a lot of teachers, like Yogananda talks in his book about, I think it was Sri Yukteswar, his teacher, coming to him in a vision and uh, having this whole experience with him. And people see Jesus. And I know a lot of people who've had encounters with Ramana Maharshi sometimes before they even had ever heard of him and things like that. So what do you think is actually going on? How does that work? 
Well, what Ma revealed to me that day is that everything is full of intelligence. Compassion is built into the foundation of reality. That Ananda is full of clarity, this brilliance. It's not just like a super nice feeling. (laughs) I mean, I really, it was just this encounter with the two predominant things, compassion and intelligence. Just this intelligence beyond anything you could conceive of. And that intelligence and that creativity and that brilliance can create any circumstance out of itself. It can appear to you in any form. And I think it appears to people in the form that will speak most to them. If it needs to be Ramana Maharshi, it'll be Ramana Maharshi. But all of those forms are that, what Ananamayama just called that. You know, I related to the form of Ananamayama and very much to her teachings, which are really just uncannily in line with Trikashivism. And that suits me, but I think that that alive, aware reality, when someone is ripe and they have a possibility to receive that, it appears in whatever form works for that person. Even on earth, uh, a being like that is really just a divine intelligence operating through a physical form. And I imagine that there are Association is much more predominant with the divine intelligence than with any kind of individual human quality. You remember in Star Wars where uh, I think Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi were fighting and Obi-Wan Kenobi said, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Some people believe that when a saint or enlightened being drops the physical body, they still exist as a unique expression of the divine with all the qualities that they possessed as a human being, but with much greater omniscience and omnipotence than they could have had in a human body. Well, I don't really make that much of a distinction between the physical and the divine from what has been granted to me to perceive. Everything is made of and permeated by that same intelligence. But nonetheless, there are plays of limitation forms show up that have limitation. And those are part of the artistry of this alive aware reality. And my experience is something like what you just said, particularly when my teachers have died, just feeling like somehow they were more available after they died, or even friends who have died, loved ones, feeling that they're feeling their release from suffering, you know, especially the ones that died of an illness. And somehow feeling their joy now that they were released from that. It's kind of wonderful. I had that when both my parents died. And another friend just told me that her mother died and she experienced it also. But there was this upwelling of bliss in me. Not that I was happy they had died, but that I was somehow partaking of their experience of mm-hmm. you know tremendous freedom from suffering. These days, it's quite popular in some spiritual circles to say that the age of the guru is over. And there's this rejection of a hierarchical teacher-student relationship. And I think that's in part because teachers have taken advantage of their position to abuse students. But there's also the, the sentiment that, hey, we're all in this together and 
we shouldn't be thinking in terms of inferiority and superiority or any such thing. And you've probably heard all this. What's your take on that sentiment? Well, I agree that it's in part what has come about through the importation of certain spiritual traditions into the West, where this kind of relationship is not native. And also the revelation of what has probably always been the abuse of students by teachers, particularly in more patriarchal traditions. So I don't think there's more abuse now necessarily. I just think now it's being revealed more and the, it's easier for word about it to get around. And people are more wise to that possibility of abuse. That being said, I think that to see the guru-disciple relationship as hierarchical in that way is not the teaching in the traditions that I've studied in most. So the job of the teacher is to show you directly that your essence nature is the same as the teacher's. It is to break down that sense of hierarchy and to show you that all of the wisdom that the teacher has is contained within you and has just been obscured. This is the, the main job of the teacher is to help you to destroy impediments to recognizing that you have enlightened essence nature already. So I like to say sometimes if the teacher says they're giving you anything, like giving you energy or something like that, run away because they don't understand that you already have everything and you have just forgotten that or it's been obscured. And then there's something else which gets, I think, mistaken for hierarchicalness that's unpleasant or dangerous in some way and definitely promoted by teachers. I mean, that hierarchical way of looking at student-teacher relationships is not just coming from students, obviously, uh, but it makes a lot of money for a lot of teachers and gives them whatever ego satisfaction they crave. But there's natural devotion. When you meet someone who, in their presence, you feel your own goodness, or you feel the possibility of being really seen and recognized for what you really are. If you can let yourself enter into that feeling of wonder and relief, then natural devotion just arises. And you want to serve that person. You want to reciprocate what you're receiving in terms of the revelation of your own nature. And you feel, uh, I felt anyway, just a sense of wonder that this relationship exists at all as a possibility that we even have teachers and can enter into these really intimate revelatory relationships with them. It's a technology for discovering what reality actually is, what you actually are. It's a natural technology. It will never be superseded. You know, it's always going to be around. It's an apprenticeship. And just like any other apprenticeship, you have gratitude and you feel tenderness and devotion toward the person that's showing you what you want to learn. And that's what I think people miss when they have these kinds of conversations. I remember back in the 90s, I taught my great aunt to meditate. She must have been 92 years old. She ended up living to 107. So I was, I was a teacher of transcendental meditation. So I was doing a puja and she was watching me. And at one point she said, 
are we worshiping this man? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, no, it's just this traditional ceremony of gratitude. And, you know, we won't go through this mm-hmm. every day. This is part of teaching you. Irene says, but the answer was really yes. But anyway, some people are put off by that kind of thing, especially yeah. 92 year old great aunts, because they feel like there's something cultish or weird. Well, or I don't know. Maybe it's a past life thing, but I have always gotten teachers. Like I just have always immediately felt and understood what it was about and how to work with teachers. And I've just really been all about guru in my life. I love this relationship between the teacher and the student, whether I'm the student or whether I'm the teacher. It's such a rich field of relating. It's so subtle. It's so nuanced. It really draws out of me everything that I have. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, I've heard some people say that even though they had been in a relationship with a teacher that they eventually realized was flawed in certain ways, that they're still grateful because they still learned or derived something. And maybe that person, you know, they're not with them any longer. They've moved on, but Mm -hmm. there was something gained. Yeah. To say there isn't any such thing as a teacher who doesn't still have karma, unless we're talking about someone who's an avatar, already born, awake, every other kind of teacher that we have on earth, even those whose students say, oh, so-and-so is totally enlightened. Everybody has their sticking points. Everybody has some things they're still working out. It's really a matter of how much of that is there and how much does it hinder the process of revelation of the self. In a sense, it's kind of cheating ourselves if we think that the teachers have to behave in some cookie cutter way to demonstrate enlightenment from our perspective. I think we should just recognize that the nature of the self can be transmitted even by someone who is only partially enlightened and not fully enlightened. And that to me is mercy. That's mercy that that can happen. Otherwise we'd really be in trouble if we had to have these perfect teachers. Yeah. And typical educational system that we all go through when you're in the third grade, you don't need a Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist or something mm-hmm. to be your teacher. You can learn a lot from a third grade teacher. Exactly. And then, and, and then move on. So that's a very good analogy, I think. <laughs> and of course, when you mention avatars not having karma and stuff, there's also a lot of people who claim to be avatars and you have to be a little True. careful of that or their students yes. claim that they're an avatar and so on. So I have to take that with a grain of salt. But there's a nice passage in your book or not in your book, on your website, you said, you have to ask yourself, do I want to be in the condition I perceive this person as being in? Do I want to embody the virtues and wisdom that they embody? Those are a couple of good questions to ask if you're checking out a teacher. Yeah, the teacher, at least in the kind of traditions that I study in, is supposed to show you, in a sense, your own best self. And if you look at teacher and you don't feel inspired by how they are in the world, you might learn something from that person, but they're not your root teacher by any means. A lot of students, in my experience, go to teachers with needs. You know, they want some sort of emotional needs met. And then when those needs aren't met, which is not the teacher's job to meet those needs, then they get disappointed. But if they went to the teacher with a feeling of inspiration or 
a feeling of, oh, I could be in that condition. I want to be in that condition. That's really the better way of working with a teacher. Yeah, there have been some very well-known teachers who were raging alcoholics and had all kinds of other horrible attributes. And, you know, I would ask myself, I think, do I want to be a raging alcoholic <laughs> you know, or whatever? I mean, if this is enlightenment, am I really interested in enlightenment? I well, think that's a valid question to ask. That person might also be hugely compassionate, too. You never know. I don't want to, like, discount all raging alcoholics here. But I agree, that is definitely something to question. What I would say is this, uh, and this is just something I've learned fairly recently, like in maybe the last seven or eight years. There comes a point in your practice or just your path of unfolding where you really deeply do not want to hurt anyone. And of course, not being totally enlightened You might inadvertently hurt someone, you know, you make a misstep or you make a misjudgment of some sort, you know, that happens to everyone, but you have never a speck of desire to do that. And when it happens, you feel deeply regretful and you have no desire to manipulate anyone. You only want the best for people. This is just something that comes about naturally after some time. So what I came to understand from that, and this is part of my just stop teaching campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you were telling me beforehand, but the people haven't heard it yet. So. Yeah. You know, when teachers are abusive and then they issue all sorts of apologies and letters and from their lawyers and they go on private retreats to try to, you know, reassemble themselves and then they start teaching again. Uh, my idea is they should just stop teaching because they're not really qualified. For life? And, or would there reach a point at which they could resume? I don't know. I mean, everybody's trajectory is And how would you different. measure it? Yeah. Well, what I do know is that someone who's serving as the, uh, the person who's going to show other people the nature of the self, that person should not have a desire to hurt people, should not be able to manipulate people for their own gains and pleasure or money. And that would just naturally subside. That behavior would not be possible if those people were in the condition that they say they're in or their students say they're in. That's what I learned. It's just simply not possible to manipulate or abuse people on purpose when you get to a certain point in your practice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good guideline that one could use to evaluate a potential teacher. And when you told me that phrase, I also came up with one, which is the don't start teaching campaign. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Mariana Kaplan coined the phrase, I believe, premature immaculation. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people who seem to be in a rush to get into the teaching game. You know? Yeah, especially in this country, for sure. All right. We don't want to bitch about this too much, but it's an important issue and it keeps coming up again and again and again and people get hurt. So it's worth discussing to mm-hmm. a certain extent. And maybe some people have some questions about it, which they'll send in. Okay. You said something in your notes about something showing up as an inner prompting that guided your choices. You called this round world guide, the friend. I hadn't heard the term round world guide, but what's that about? Well, the friend is something that has been part of my life since I was very young. Round world is something I just learned maybe like 20 years ago. But in any case, the friend is a felt sense of being guided by some kind of 
wisdom that feels internal, but it's not really internal. And it's that prompting that tells you what's actually good for you, what's actually of benefit and what actually isn't of benefit and where you should step next. So I felt this very strongly from a very young age that there was a kind of wholesomeness and sweetness that I was following. And when I didn't do that, when I ignored those promptings, I really suffered. And eventually I called this the friend and I wrote some poetry, some despairing poetry when I was in my teen years related to this idea of the friend. And then later I found out that other people on the spiritual path also talked about the friend, most notably Rumi, that this is um, something that comes to a lot of people. And then later, I, when I was living in Berkeley, and I don't know when this was, I might have been in college or it might have been later than that. I'm not sure. I heard someone talking on the radio about having left their country. I think it was China, but again, it's, I really don't remember who it was. I really did my best to try to find out, but I never could find out. And that they had felt they had left the round world and entered into the flat world, meaning here. And the round world is the world where there are ancestors and other and unseen beings and magic and more possibilities and more layers to reality. And the flat world is like the WYSIWYG world. What you see is what you get, uh, where everything is just kind of boring and dull and materialistic. And this young man said this, there was just so much yearning and despair in his voice when he talked about this. At that moment, I recognized that the round world was where I had been living since I was born, pretty much, and why I felt so at odds with people around me when I was a child because they were in the flat world and I felt like I was in the round world. I didn't have this idea. So since then, I've really been using that phrase round world to talk about what we enter into more fully when we do practice and when our senses become more subtle and we're able to perceive more about how things really are. That's nice. I didn't have a conscious sense of this friend principle myself until I was through my adolescence and in my, into my 20s, I suppose. When I think back on it now, I feel like it must have been there and I might not have even lived if, if it hadn't been protecting me and mm-hmm. guiding me to some extent. Same here. And like what you just said, on the one hand, you can think of it as your own deeper intuition. But on the other hand, I, I really do believe and often discuss on this program that there's a world of intelligent beings or impulses or whatever we want to call them that aren't ordinarily perceived by people, but that are very much concerned with and involved in human affairs and guiding and protecting us guardian angels, if you want to call them that. You know, as we go along, we get more and more attuned to that and uh, more cooperative, we could say. I mean, I think those beings are other aspects of the one self, just like we are. Right. And like, so everything my, is, yeah. like everything is. So now my experience of the friend is just that alive, aware reality speaking to me in a sense and not really attached to any particular form. Here's a nice phrase from your website that I liked. I I wish more people had this attitude. I don't get stuck thinking I have arrived or ever will. I don't want anyone else to get stuck either. Do you feel like there is an an ultimate terminus point at which one can arrive? Or do you think that even those who arrive at our conception of that realize there's yet another horizon and the potential for more 
refinement or development in some respect? I don't know if one ever arrives. And I think that's nothing anyone could know until they did. But I do know that all of our human definitions of enlightenment fall short. Most of them fall very, very short in my estimation. And I know this because of Nanamaima. Through encountering her, she is the one that keeps me unstuck. Because all I have to do is think of her and feel her and understand I'll never be that ever. And so just keep putting one foot in front of the other and forget about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. (laughs) So Um, she keeps me unstuck. But there's a lot of definitions of enlightenment out there. And some of them are very minor, like not thinking. You know, if you stop thinking, then you're enlightened. And then there's other things where somebody just has one spiritual experience of note and they think they're enlightened. And some of this is perfectly innocent. They just don't know. Uh, And some of it is not, you know, but I really think it's hopefully what you said, that they would get stuck, but then get unstuck eventually. (laughs) Yeah, I think that raises the point that it's good to keep your knowledge lively. Not only culture your experience through practice, but culture your intellectual understanding of the path and the supposed goal and all that. Because you you really can sell yourself short and reach erroneous conclusions about what level of attainment you have and, and so on. Two teachers I respect, Ama and uh, Amrita Nandamai and Adyashanti, both often say it's good to have the attitude of a beginner. Yeah, that's a very wise Buddhist teaching. Yeah, because relatively speaking, we are compared to possibilities, no matter how advanced we may be. I say we're always somewhere in the middle of an infinite field. (laughs) That's even more groundless than being a beginner because there's no timeline. Yeah. And I also sometimes use the example of if you feel like you have arrived, it's like saying, I'm educated. Yeah, you Mm -hmm. are. But does that mean you can't learn anything more? Is anybody ever Mm -hmm. ultimately educated? Yeah, I think that, and I've said this in so many different places that when you engage with wisdom traditions, whether they be spiritual traditions or crafts or things like jyotish and divination, anyone who engages really deeply and honestly with a wisdom tradition understands that there's no mastery. That's not actually something that you can achieve. And that's the pleasure of it. The pleasure of wisdom traditions is that you can learn infinitely. You can refine infinitely. They're infinitely nuanced. Otherwise, it would be a little bit boring. Now, some people say that, okay, well, that education example doesn't apply to the field of enlightenment because enlightenment involves realization of something which is absolute. And once that is realized, it can't be improved upon. And then there's the whole question of direct versus progressive paths, which I'd like to get into with with you a little bit. Some people feel like if they've glommed on to some absolute level of consciousness or reality or realization that they are truly done and that relative refinements could go on endlessly, but those aren't very significant. We're not improving on the absolute. That is something that's not possible, but we are improving on our immersion in it, our degree of immersion in it. So sometimes I've compared that to, you know, a big swimming pool. You can be in the shallow end of the pool and you're in the water but it's not the deep end. 
So, you know, if we have an infinite pool and you just keep walking in deeper and deeper and deeper, then you recognize that there's no arrival, but there is greater and greater immersion, greater skillfulness, greater embodiment of the wisdom virtues of the absolute. Yeah, embodiment is a key point. And if we think of ourselves as channels for the absolute or sense organs of the infinite or some such thing, Mm -hmm. then we have to ask ourselves, well, to what extent am I actually reflecting or expressing this in my human existence? And have I reached the ultimate possibility of that in terms of my intellect, my heart, my senses, all the different faculties? And I think the answer is going to be no. (laughs) I would refine that a little to say that we never know where we're going until we get there and we don't have a measure of where we are. So we can't say, I arrived at the absolute and I do I actually embody it? I don't think that's a possible question. We can ask of the wisdom that I've been granted, of the direct knowledge of the nature of things that I've been granted right now and here, am I embodying that? But I don't think it's actually possible to say that 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 whatever that is, it's the end. Good. Have you ever heard the kind of debate between those who advocate the direct path versus the progressive path? Sure. What's Uh, your take on that? That's a big part of Trika and also Dzogchen. Well, you know, both of these traditions have at their heart very, very simple practices of encounter with the base state of reality. But they also both have enormously complicated other practices that people can do that are more gradual in their way that they unfold for people. Both of these ways of relating to the traditions that I'm in are completely valid. There's no argument between them. There's people in different conditions who need different methods in order to be able to wake up to whatever extent is vouchsafed them in this life. So I'll give you an example. The first kind of meditation I ever learned was open-eyed non-conceptual meditation, which is basically, you know, you're just sitting with open eyes and there's some very subtle instructions. And most of the people that got taught this at the same time I did stopped doing it because they just, you know, it didn't mean anything to them. And I remember a friend of mine asked me to teach him to meditate. He was a very nervous person. He was always trying to control his environment. And this was the only kind of meditation I knew. So I taught him how to do this open-eye non-conceptual meditation. He told me he was up the whole night before he was going to do it in the morning. He was so nervous. And then he was like terrified sitting in the chair. And he didn't understand why he was so terrified just sitting there. And I realized, oh, this is not the right practice for someone in his condition. In Trita, there's this beautiful progression from practices that involve more of your body, like doing puja or doing other kinds of practices where you're engaging your body, your energy, and your mind through to practices that are more of like an energy-based level where you're working with subtle energy and internal channels and things like that through to the more direct practices where there's just um, some kind of piercing through to the nature of things using very simple means. And these three we could say levels of practice are meant for people in different conditions or they're meant to be done in a way that they support each other somehow. But 
this is all just part of the generosity of these traditions. I don't see them in opposition at all. They're trying to answer to different kinds of people. And it's also part of the oppositional, the embodiment of their oppositional stance to more mainstream traditions that exclude people from doing spiritual practice. So particularly in India, the tantric traditions in general, not just Trika, were trying to make room for other kinds of people who had been excluded from doing practice. And having all these different kinds of practices that address people who have less capacity or more capacity is part of that and part of the compassion, I think, and generosity of those traditions. Yeah, I've often observed over the years that a lot of people have a hard time sticking with a spiritual practice. That was true when I was teaching meditation and, mm-hmm. um, you know, many people have known. And I have a really good friend these days who I've been giving some pep talks to about trying to find a, a way to meditate successfully and regularly. And she has an ardent desire to meditate regularly, but always has a hard time just finding something that she can do that works for her. Do you feel like if someone had a teacher or some ideal teacher who really had the whole Swiss army knife of practices in mind, there would be a practice for almost anybody that would, that could be tailored to, to their need and makeup that mm-hmm. they would find it possible to do regularly. That might be part of it. And maybe that is true, but then I guess there's still going to be the need for a little bit of individual gumption. It's not just going to take you by the seat of your pants and carry you to enlightenment. You have to apply yourself no matter what the practice. What do you think about all that? Well, yes, uh, you have to apply yourself. Uh, <laughs> no teacher ever has ever made anyone become enlightened. Right. That's not how it works. Yeah. But in any case, I would say that, for instance, after having that experience with my poor friend that I put through that <laughs> bad night, and also watching other students of my teachers drop out and not do practice, I instituted three different levels of meditation teaching for Jayakula, starting with something that gives you more to keep you busy into an intermediate kind of a practice and then open-eyed meditation. And by the time people get to that non-conceptual meditation, they understand it. They already have some experience that helps them to stick with it. That being said, you know, in any tradition, traditions are specific. They can have as many practices as they want, but they still have a view. And then each person coming to a teacher has their own karma. So there's always going to be some students who aren't going to practice. You know, they're there to get a date or <laughs> do whatever. You know, and that's completely fine. But many more people, many more people will stick to practice if there's a teacher who can sense the specificity of the condition that that student is in and work with them to find the right practices for them. I consider that to be one of my main jobs. And my Dzogchen teacher had a really beautiful, sweet and humble thing he used to say, which is working together, student and teacher find a way. Nice. Have you ever run into the neo-advaita crowd who say things like, you're already enlightened, you don't need to do practice because practice only reinforces the notion of a practicer, just accept that you're already enlightened, this is the way it is, what you're seeing now. And Have you ever run into that? Yeah, I've run into versions of that. That's sort of non-dual bypassing. 
<laughs> it's very easy to do. It's interesting because in this country, we're very competitive and we always want to be the best and the top and we always want to win, etc. So when you have traditions that have levels of practice, like everyone wants to be at the highest level. And this is certainly true about Trika Shaivism. It lends itself to someone who wants to say, it's about instant enlightenment. We don't have to do anything. You know, it's all about grace and instant enlightenment. Just sit around drinking your beer. And if Lord Shiva decides you're going to be enlightened, you will be. <laughs> uh, but this is actually a gross misunderstanding of the tradition. So that kind of idea of instant enlightenment or just sitting around doing nothing, you're already enlightened, so why bother? That's for someone who's already been practicing for lifetimes upon lifetimes, and then they arrive in that, you know, almost fully bloomed condition. So it's it's a misunderstanding that that is for most people. It doesn't discount it. It's not that it's untrue. It's just untrue for most of us. Good point. There's a, a variation of that theme where there used to be a beer ad where these guys are sitting in a boat fishing, and, and one of them says, it doesn't get any better than this. In the spiritual arena, there's some teachers who say things like, well, there's only this. Don't expect some big enhancement of what you're experiencing. I always feel like that's kind of cruel. I mean, do you say that to a chronically depressed person or a psychotic person or something? Of course, there's an enhancement. That's the whole idea. So I don't know. I just react to that kind of notion, picking your well, brain on it. Yeah. That kind of admonition and damping down of any expectations. I've noticed that that's part of the culture of some traditions. And also, I think maybe some teachers do that because everyone's so addicted to the big experience and the big win here that it's hard to get people to just like be okay with the dailiness of spiritual practice and its ordinariness most of the time. But I think there has to be a balance because spiritual practice does allow you to enter into the extraordinary to extraordinary perception. So we can't lie to people and say that that's not a possibility and also just like depress the hell out of them because then they don't know why they're doing it. But I do think that there needs to be some way to get students to just sit down, be an ordinary person doing this day to day, and the things will come. Whatever's going to happen will happen if you just do that. Yeah, that's good. I once had a teacher who said to me, every day is life. Don't pass over the present for some glorious future. Mm -hmm. So obviously one could be bemoaning one's state and totally ruining the life you are living, mm -hmm. pining for something you want to be living. So there's some kind of a balancing act of being content with what you're experiencing, but also realizing that there could be many upgrades yet to come. Well, I would say maybe content is too strong of a word. Reconciling oneself. <laughs> Reconciling. Yeah. Right. Because discontent and yearning is the, the desire to experience something differently is the great engine of spiritual life. True. You know, without yearning and that sense that things could be different for you, you would never do anything. So we want to actually have that grow stronger and stronger and stronger. But at the same time, we have to be reconciled with the condition that we are actually in because we can't build an authentic practice on fantasy. Yeah. 
But I guess getting back to the education analogy, if we're in the third grade and we think, oh, the third grade sucks. I know there's higher mathematics. Why do we have to study this stupid stuff and blah, blah, blah. Then you're not really taking advantage of what the third grade has to teach. Yeah, true. But eventually contentment does dawn, you know, Santosh, I think they call Mm -hmm. it. That doesn't mean you're finished, but it doesn't mean you're agonizing or yearning or I don't know. That's my own experience. Back in the 80s and so on, I used to think, oh, enlightenment or bust kind of attitude. But um, (laughs) these days, it's like, hey, I'm having a great time and I know that there's more to come, but I'm good with this also. But it it hasn't dampened my enthusiasm. I kind of went through that for a few years thinking I was content and then Uh something shifted and I went into a new phase of yearning. Maybe I'll do that too. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Let me know. (laughs) Okay, I will. Let's ask a question here. This guest has been patiently waiting. This is Bob Ralph in Whidbey Island, Washington. Hey, we'll trade houses with you, Bob. We always look at what a nice place Whidbey Island might be. It is nice. His question is, I have experienced death and rebirth several times, once to comfort and accompany a friend by holding her hand while she passed over. My feeling was drawn out of my body and into hers, and together we went through a vortex. I felt both of us going in, but then she said, it's okay, you can go back now. It then ended. My question is, is this something others have experienced? It seemed like no big deal to me, but everyone in the room became uneasy with me when I described it. I then assume I am different. Well, there's reams of books about experiences of close encounters with death or near encounters when we don't actually die. But I've interviewed a lot. and I interviewed a guy all about shared death experiences. For sure, you are not alone in that experience and not um, not a one-off. <laughs> yeah, Bob, you might want to watch my interview with William Peters if you haven't. He was the one about shared death experiences. He has a book in which he recounts numerous experiences like that. I think it's a whole field of study. It is, yeah. There's NDEs, near death, and then SDEs, shared death, and... Mm-hmm. Then OBEs, out of body experiences, and <laughs> all these things. I never heard of shared death before. Yeah, William Peters. It was, it's interesting. There's so many examples where people entrain with the person dying and share in their experience. Wow. And here's another question that came in. This is from Ashima Earhart in Virginia. I'm 57 years old and took early retirement to deepen my sadhana. I feel such longing to absorb into her presence without the many demands of a job. How can one discern if one is simply running away from the stress of the workforce or truly being guided by her to go into the next phase of life? Hi, Ashima. I think we're Facebook friends. I don't know her in person, but I'm Uh. pretty sure we're Facebook friends. Being able to take retirement and being able to support oneself adequately so that you can do spiritual practice more is a privilege and it's one you should take advantage of. It's a gift. And what we should, yes, (laughs) I'm not retired by any means, but I did spend several years only working 10 hours a week and spending the rest of the time doing practice. So, you know, kind of the minimum I needed to survive. And I feel like if we have that possibility, this is grace in our lives And you shouldn't worry too much about leaving behind the stress of the workforce. I mean, who wouldn't do that if they could, even if they didn't have a spiritual practice? 
just consider this a gift from God and do your best to take advantage of every aspect of it. Good answer. Okay, I'm taking some more points you sent me from your notes. Direct realization. Where does that phrase come from and what does it mean? In Sanskrit, it's pratyaksha darshana. And it means to see for yourself or to see directly for yourself. And there are a number of spiritual traditions that are direct realization traditions. Trika is one of them, Dzogchen, Chan Buddhism. There are other ones. But it means that the view of the tradition and the experience of the practitioners in the tradition is that the nature of the self or of reality, if they don't call it a self, is there to be discovered directly through our own senses, through our body, energy, and mind. We have everything that we need to actually perceive directly the nature of reality or the nature of the self. So all of these traditions, all of their practices that they're doing are done with this attitude that we can, without any intercession of or interceding of anything, use our own sensorium to perceive the nature of things. Well, how could there be any realization other than direct realization? Because, I mean, if guru such and such says he has a realization, that doesn't do me any good. It, it has to be direct. Ultimately, I guess, but that's not the view of traditions that don't subscribe to this sort of thing. So, you know, there's some traditions for whom the goal of the practice is not this kind of direct realization. It's being good so that you'll go to heaven. There are other sort of end results that traditions want other than this. And there are many traditions that say, we are very different from God. We're very different from the divine. We don't have what it takes. And you are only going to be saved by God, or you're only going to have an intellectual revelation of things. There's not in many other traditions the sense that with your own perceptions, without any other tools, you can perceive how things actually are. That's true. As I understand Christianity, at least as it's currently understood, the attitude is that deep down we're all sinners. And the idea that mm -hmm. God dwells within us as us is blasphemous. And yeah. we need a priest to, to intercede between us and God. Mm -hmm. We can't have that direct relationship. At least some forms of Christianity have felt mm -hmm. this, Catholicism. Yeah, um, the view of the direct realization traditions, and that phrase was a phrase that's used in Trika and also Anandamayama used it. I don't think I've ever seen that particular phrase in Dzogchen, but you know, I haven't read as widely in Dzogchen. In any case, it's based on the understanding that the nature of you is the same as the nature of everything else, so that you should be able to perceive your own nature directly if you remove the obscurations that are in the way. That makes such total sense. Or even if we want to put it in terms of God, if God doesn't permeate every bit of us, and if there's anything that is not God, then God is not omnipresent. He's got holes here and there where there's some non-God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, even if we look to the traditions that are more closely in geography to the ones that I study in, some of them have as a goal to stop thinking or to be desireless or to be good, or to be very compassionate, or something like that. 
you know, they just have different goals. It's not that we don't care about compassion that comes naturally, but it's not the end point. Yeah, I think all those points you just mentioned have their place to stop thinking, for instance. You can go into a state of samadhi where you have stopped thinking, but you can't live that way all the time necessarily. Mm-hmm. Although I have interviewed a couple of people who say they really don't think thoughts. And um but I think what they are what's happening with them is that the mind has gotten permanently more settled so they don't have the discursive thoughts right. that most of us have. There's right. just more subtle impulses that comprise their thought process. Well, to give you an example of the difference between the kind of tradition I'm in and some other ones that people are very familiar with, where mindfulness is really an important practice and many different techniques for that. In the direct realization traditions, the instruction is unmind the mind. Don't worry about the mind. The mind does what mind does. Don't fuss with it all day long. Don't fuss with it all day long. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And as regards to thoughts, there's a wonderful story in a tantric text from India called the Tripura Rahasya. It's sort of a combination between straight ahead view teachings and a Purana, which is a teaching story. So there's a husband and a wife. Their story is kind of threaded throughout this text. And the husband thinks that he's a yogi and his wife is just an ordinary housewife. Oh, yeah. This is one of the Puranas, I think. But she actually is the great practitioner and he has much more minor chops. Anyway, at one point, he's meditating. He's got his eyes closed. And she interrupts him and says, husband, what do you want for lunch? And He tells her and then he says, no, go away, woman. So I can close my eyes and enter samadhi again. And she says, husband, if your samadhi depends on whether a quarter of an inch of skin is open or closed, I don't really think it's all that much. And I think the same could be said for thoughts. If your enlightenment, so-called, depends on whether there's a stray thought here or there, it's really not all that much. There's a second verse in the Yoga Sutras. It says, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind, the chitta vrittis. And I think that that has its place as a temporary experience. And I think when that is cultured and stabilized and integrated, one doesn't have a very noisy mind usually. I think that's true, but vritti means karmic mind patterns. So it's not that thoughts themselves have to go away, but habit patterns of the mind. Conditioned habitually. Conditioned habitually, yeah. So vrittis are like some scars of the mind. Yeah, that's good. And this is kind of what happens when things get translated sometimes. They get a little bit dumbed down and we lose some of the nuance or we reinterpret them through other stuff that we've learned or we don't understand a word like vritti. Then it becomes like, oh, all thoughts have to subside. No, it's just the pattern thoughts, the habitual thoughts. Yeah. So in light of what you just said, it seems like there could be two kinds of thoughts. One would be conditioned, driven by impressions and action, impression, desire cycle. But the other could be totally unconditioned and just arising appropriately given under whatever circumstances. Exactly. And so the mind does quiet because some of those riches subside. But thinking is a natural phenomenon. I don't think it ever really yeah, yeah, stops. No. In <laughs> fact, I think if a person is acting, they're thinking. If I pick up this glass, there was a mental impulse before my arm moved. And I, I can't imagine how there could be any action without some preceding mental activity. You think? Well, there's also, 
I don't know. Well, there's muscle memory and there's, there's great athletes. Yeah. <laughs> Steph Curry doesn't think about, okay, I'm going to do yeah. the task. But there is some mental impulse to do this or do that. Yeah. It's, it's spontaneous. Almost, yeah, it's more spontaneous. One thing that does happen is that as you start to relax on this very deep level, traces of other lives start to become more obvious and images and words and little scenes and things that have no seeming relation to one's current life can sometimes flood your mind. They're not exactly thoughts because you're not thinking about anything, but it's almost like some sort of reservoir has been unleashed of these impressions. So do you feel like that's the clearing of deep scars that's taking place? You know what? I have never had any idea what it is. I just assume it's something related to this jumble, this collection. I don't know if it's past, present, future, how it's related to me. I don't know. Sometimes they're more obvious. Sometimes they go away completely. But we don't come into this life as a tabla rasa. We have had past lives and we have deep impressions. And That's right. It would make sense that we're not just going to clear away the impressions that we've accumulated in this life, that... Older ones, deeper ones have to be cleared up. Exactly. One of my friends who was also a spiritual teacher called it the treasury of worms. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) One question that about an hour ago, you said something, and this question has been in the back of my mind, about how you don't transmit enlightenment from one person to another. And I was wondering what you think of the phenomenon of Shaktipat. Well, Shaktipat often gets translated as a town coming of grace or a descent of grace. Ananda Mahima said there's no down coming and there's no up going. There's just grace everywhere. So Shaktipat is when we notice, when conditions are right for us to notice more of our real nature, for us to be able to experience directly for ourselves more of how things actually are. So there are certain conditions that can help that to happen. And then we call it Shaktipat. But what it really means is we've just noticed something that was always there and always true. But now it's like a curtain has come apart and we can feel that and see that. So in terms of Shaktipat, Abhinavagupta, one of the siddhas and practitioners of Trika, said that the yearning, the longing that we feel to realize this evidence of Shaktipat, that that is Lord Shiva giving us Shaktipat in the form of our own longing, which I just always thought was so beautiful. But in terms of how teachers and students work together and what is called transmission or some version of Shaktipat, that's a really alchemical and very mystical occurrence. I couldn't say exactly what is happening, but my own experience of it is that I'm sharing I'm including students in my own experience somehow, then they're able to experience that in themselves. And what I tell my students when we do that kind of work together, I say, anything you experience is you. It's something you already have. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to experience it. Yeah, I like that. I think of it, Shaktipat, not as a kind of a zapping of spiritual thunderbolts from A to B, but more like an entrainment (laughs) process, you know, where you're Mm -hmm. in the field of the teacher and there's some alignment, like a damp log next to a brightly burning log and the damp log gets dried out and starts burning. 
So a bunch of questions have come in. I want to switch to them. <laughs> First of all, we have uh, one more from Bob Routh on Whidbey Island. He said, when we reach what we think is enlightenment, is that just one perspective of what we think is the whole? Once we arrive, I feel if I alter my current perspective, even the smallest amount, then I realize I know little and my education has just begun. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Well, as I said earlier, I don't think there is any arrival. I just think there's a deepening a deepening immersion. So that question wouldn't be answerable on its own terms for me. And the fact that one is worrying about arrival, I think is something worth investigating because most of us are so far from anything, even we could call arrival, (laughs) even if we had that concept. Really, what is the point of thinking about it? Our job is to just put our, as I say, put our head down walk barefoot on the road and just keep going. There's a great movie called Arrival, but it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. had to do with ETs. Um, (laughs) Did you know I'm a science fiction fan or is that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, no. Yeah, I am. (laughs) Oh, cool. Are you a kind of a movie buff? I don't know if I'm a buff, but I've been reading and watching science fiction since I was very, very young. Oh, cool. Interesting. I'll talk to you about that later. Here's a question from Tomas Dobek in Luton, UK. Can Shambhavi compare her experience to Jane Roberts, who was channeling Seth? Is it an experience that compares to channeling? I don't know who Jane Roberts is, but... Uh, She was a channeler, and there was this entity called Seth, and she wrote all these books, the Seth books. And um, there have been a lot of people who channel. Anyway, you know what channeling is. I've heard of it, yeah. Well, channeling is kind of a dualistic way of conceiving of an experience. So no, I've never conceived of my own experience that way. I just feel that I'm entering into the heart space where that infinity of wisdom is manifesting and within a human being. And I'm calling on that wisdom and I'm calling on my teachers to help me, to help students. And just sharing the field of wisdom that I'm experiencing. I don't have any sense of channeling because I have the experience that I'm already that. So there's, I'm just trying to get out of the way of it. That's good. I think the the key here is that you use the word field and you say, I am already that. Whereas channeling involves an isolated entity that one is becoming a mouthpiece for. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a big difference. Yeah, I've never had that experience. Here's a question from L. Shankar in Atlanta. You mentioned that while you were on the balcony, you had a profound experience where Ma showed you the nature of reality. What did you see or experience? You alluded to it, but maybe you could elaborate a bit. I think maybe other than just feeling her utter mercy and grace, and I just felt so overwhelmed by that. One of the most significant things I learned during that afternoon was that everything is made of wisdom or virtue, what I call wisdom virtue. For instance, that compassion is not something that we have or that we cultivate, that there is natural compassion just filling all of space and time, all of existence. And then we just embody that more as we relax. The same with that, like I learned that there's this intelligence that is so far not what we call intellect that is permeating everything. So I really discovered that what God is, is wisdom. 
or wisdom virtue. And I had never understood what God was before. The words that had been used to describe God or Shiva when I was receiving view teachings in Trika, you know, was omnipotent and omniscient. I mean, all of these like relatively dull, dry words that really didn't inspire anything in me. I was just like, okay, yada, yada, yada. I don't even know what that means. It doesn't move me in any way. And then what Ma showed me what God actually is. And then I realized also that devotion just comes naturally with that understanding of the nature of things, that the experience of devotion and the knowledge of the nature of the self arise simultaneously, because there's no possibility that you would not experience devotion in light of this revelation. And I had also not thought of myself as particularly devotional before this. Although my friends laughed at me when I would say that they'd say, you know, you're just like someone who's lost their sunglasses on top of their head. <laughs> but, but then I, I really entered into a much more devotional phase of my life. And I just felt like I found out who God was, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I could say more than that. It's so cool that you just, you know, you went up the stairs and you got on this balcony and this whole thing happened. It must have taken you quite some time to unpack it all and be able to articulate it like this. But it's beautiful that one can have a download like that, if you want to call it a download. There have been other examples throughout history of Saul on the road to Damascus or the prophet Muhammad or various others just getting a big opening and just being flooded with wisdom and then eventually integrating it and being able to express it. So it's great. Yeah, it does take time to integrate. And I think that's a really important point, Rick, because many people just are after spiritual experiences and they have an experience. They think that's it. I had the experience. But really, there has to be sometimes years and years of integration. The experience itself is the American Kundalini yoga teacher, Rudy, said the experience is the work order. It's not (laughs) the end. It's the beginning. That's good. We're getting a lot of esoteric questions here today. Here's a question from Sarah McDougall in Maine. I would love to hear what you know about the rainbow body phenomenon. What actually is going on both scientifically and spiritually? Have you ever witnessed Mm -hmm. this or do you know anyone who has? Have any scientists researched this that you know of? Rainbow body relates to the five elements, uh, earth, water, fire, air, and space, which have both concrete gross forms and subtle forms and if we walk backward along the cascade of becoming toward the absolute we say here's the absolute and here's our everyday life so if we kind of walk backward we here we have the more concrete versions of the five elements but eventually we have the lights of the five elements the light forms of the five elements so When people take a light body, they have basically resolved their karma to such a degree that instead of displaying ordinary five element displays like our bodies, they now are displaying the subtle forms of the five elements as colored light, rainbow light. So that's the explanation that's given by those traditions. As far as scientists go, I am really not of the mind that scientists should be offering proof through their view of the methods or results of spiritual practices, which operate with a different worldview. You know, I love science. I've studied science. I have 
undergraduate degree in science and have, have studied science my whole life, but their explanations are further down on the chain of the, of uh, the cascade of becoming more gross. So basically, I think that the yogis should be explaining things to the scientists, not the reverse. <laughs> and I won't say more about that because it's one of my pet rants. But. It's one of my pet rants, too. I gave a whole talk on it at the SAND conference. And I think there can be some kind of mutual benefit. Obviously, spirituality explores a huge range of realms that science doesn't even have any idea exist. And if we really want to have total knowledge as a civilization, we need to explore those realms. But science is good in terms of its empirical, systematic approach. And a lot of times spirituality gets too ungrounded and too imaginative and could use a little bit of rigor in terms of actually empirically verifying various ideas. So well, some... the idea that something is empirical or objective is already an epistemology and a view that's antithetical to the epistemology of the traditions that I study and how we come to know things. So when we say they would benefit from an empirical view, we're basically, from my perspective, imposing a kind of epistemological violence on those traditions. From the perspective of people, scientists who don't actually practice or understand what's going on, they're coming into multi-thousand-year-old traditions and saying, we're going to apply this lens of empirical science on you, on something they don't understand. Yeah, that's not quite how I mentioned it. It's not that the scientists are going to come in and impose this on the spiritual people, but the spiritual people could borrow from science sometimes more of an empirical attitude. You know, just be a little bit more rigorous in terms of wanting, not certainty, what's the right word, just experiential genuineness of what they're experiencing. I'm sure that the traditions you've studied have had warnings about getting lost in imaginal realms and fooling yourself. Well, in the world of science, there are bad scientists or oh, yeah. scientists who aren't that great. Right. And then there are the scientists who do a really, really good job. The same thing in the spiritual world. There are practitioners yeah. who maybe get lost in imaginal realms, but really who cares about them? I would say, as a practitioner myself, I don't think any scientist is any more rigorous than I am and any more precise, any more sober, having any more clarity than I have. So again, I think, I don't want to get into this too deeply because I could hijack the whole conversation, but I think, again, there's something being imposed here that isn't being imposed through a lack of understanding of what it actually is to practice in a rigorous way. There is no lack of rigor in spiritual traditions. That's, no, I'll that, just say that. There shouldn't be, and that's what I'm kind of saying. Yeah, but we don't may... need to borrow that from Western tradition. Well, I'm just know? saying the Western tradition has some merit and can extract the juice of it, maybe. And it could be that because you have some academic training in science that you have this rigorous attitude, or it could be just that you have a rigorous attitude, that your innate rigorous attitude attracted you both to science and to a rigorous application of spirituality. But still, you're assuming that the rigor that I practice came either from my engagement with science or something I brought in prior to practicing. I say that the traditions have rigor already inbuilt. So you don't think that spiritual traditions, there's nothing valuable in science that they could 
learn? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, When I was at Stanford in graduate school, I was part of a roundtable that included artists and technologists and physicists and all kinds of crazy people. And we really just had a blast together. But there were these physicists that were working at an institute where they did something called boundary physics, which is they looked at phenomenon that could not be explained by ordinary physics and particularly phenomenon that seemed to engage the idea of consciousness. So they were doing all these experiments. For instance, they would measure how probabilities turned out when many people in the globe were all paying attention to the same event, like the Olympics or something. Yeah, like Dean Radin has done that kind of work. So they would discover that that the laws of probability were slightly tweaked during those times. Or they would do other kinds of experiments like that. I won't go into it. But they were doing that while I was like going on a Nanamayama's balcony and having an experience of grace. I felt sorry for them. (laughs) You know, they wanted to engage with consciousness. They wanted to understand more about consciousness. But they were measuring probability statistics and dropping coins in little plastic tubes to see which side they went on. Yeah, yeah. I felt kind I of mean, sorry for them. <laughs> sure, I, I know what you're saying. And um, I'm not one of those people myself. I would get totally bored doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> but science, in a way, is the language of the age. And the Dalai Lama, for instance, has great respect for scientists. Yeah, and- he loves it. Yeah, I, I just think it has a contribution to make. And uh, that somehow there will be a marriage of science and spirituality. And, you know, 100 years from now, we might not really distinguish between them that much. Well, that would be wonderful for scientists. Yeah, it would. <laughs> I see where your sentiments <laughs> I think it'd be wonderful for all concerned. I mean, um, okay, I agree with you that I think spirituality has more to teach science than the other way around. But there's some kind of a, amalgamation that might be more than the sum of its parts. Well, as Ma and Abhinavagupta said, God makes the impossible possible. And also the possible impossible. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Um, <laughs> here's a question from Prachi Dixit in Torrance, California. Without the conscious desire to seek the divine, is it possible to get pulled towards it? For me, at least once a day, it seems it turns into an uncontrollable motion with tears. Am I doing this unconsciously? Well, if those tears are tears of devotion, then... I think that's wonderful. I don't know what kind of tears we're talking about. Yeah, there's all kinds of subtle ways that we're pulled toward discovering more about who we are and what's really happening here that are pulling us even before we have any conscious notion of what's happening. This was certainly my experience as a child. Yeah, the friend. I, I thought I had no spiritual life, really, until I was in graduate school. I just thought I had no spiritual life. I didn't identify anything that was happening a spiritual. I would have said I was an atheist. I didn't know anything about India until I was in my tw- in my 20s. But yet all these things were happening and pulling me in some direction or another. And eventually, you know, I arrived at where I needed to be. But yeah, I think we, we get pulled along in all kinds of wonderful, weird ways. Yeah. I mean, if we want to bring past lives into it, I feel like a lot of us had a momentum going. Then we came into this life and we had our stumbles and kicks and Mm -hmm. dead ends and and whatnot, but there was a destiny and somehow eventually it clicked in. 
I will yeah. say though that when we do become aware that we're being guided or when something arises to the level of our awareness, that's the great time to go for it. Because if we push it back down, we don't know when it's going to rise again. That's a really good point. Make hay when the sun shines. Exactly. And a lot of teachers say that. I mean, a lot of teachers say, maybe it was one of the satsangs I was listening to. <laughs> I, I listened to a whole lot of your podcasts in the last week, but there was one, I think, where you're talking about the inevitability of death and the, the unexpectedness of it. It could happen at any moment. So we just want to take advantage of the opportunity. If we realize this possibility, we want to take full advantage of it with whatever time we have available. In India, there's some people who have the attitude that, oh, you know, I'll, I'll become a sannyasi when I retire. And meanwhile, I'm going to do all this other stuff. And I guess sometimes the option is presented to them, well, you can renounce the world now and get into spirituality, but you can balance both and integrate spirituality into a householder life. You talk about mm -hmm. that on your website. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have to wait for anything. Right. Okay. Jumping back to some of your notes here. The centrality of the heart and devotion in Trika Shaivism. In Trika, all of reality is considered to be the heart. And then the heart space inside of us, which is in the center of the chest, it's also sometimes called the heart space or the cave of the heart, is like the living symbol or the microcosm of the heart everywhere. The heart is the outpouring of wisdom it's that fountain of wisdom that's coming out and emerging as worlds all worlds and beings so that's happening everywhere all the time this fountain of becoming or cascade of becoming and we can experience that both the absolute and the fountain of generosity happening in the heart space so there are many practices that are heart-based and much that can be discovered in, we could also call it the sunti of the heart, that gap or opening that we experience in that space. So the way you described that just now made it sound to me like what you're saying is that there's a cosmic heart from which all this fecundity, all this creativity is pouring yeah. forth. Yes. And then there's the individual heart, which is the microcosm of the cosmic mm -hmm. heart. And that is perhaps the portal which connects the individual with the cosmic. That's right. In Trika and other traditions like it, everything that is in existence is also in the human body. And so that's why we can practice with a human body and realize everything. There's a beautiful teaching in a lot of the ancient tantras, this teaching text, Let's say there's no need to go on external pilgrimages because the greatest pilgrimage is the human body, that we can discover everything. So the heart space, which is not our physical heart, it's just the center of our chest inside. The heart space is the same as the heart everywhere, but it gives us a focus. It's basically meant for sadhana, like all of the subtle anatomy is vouchsafe to us so that we can do sadhana with it and discover the nature of reality. Perhaps that's what's meant by man is made in the image of God. Yeah, everything is, not just human beings. but There's a correlation. There's also this thing in some of the Vedic understanding that there's a correspondence in various aspects of the human physiology with the Veda or the 
impulses of intelligence which give rise to and orchestrate the creation that you can find correlations between different aspects of mm-hmm. that field of primordial knowledge and our human physiology. Yeah. I think that this way of experiencing the human sensorium and body is recapitulated in lots of different traditions and different That's ways a good word. for sure. Yeah. Good. I'm just going to go right down your notes here because I think you'll have gems with each one. The nature of satsang. Ah, so satsang, the word sat means reality or existence. And sang is a kind of a prefix or a suffix that it means a confluence or a coming together. The way that I like to translate satsang is being in reality together or coming together in reality. Satsang is a really ancient form of spiritual practice, perhaps the most ancient, where you just gather together with a teacher, with someone who has some realization, and you just sit in that field together and you experience more of who you really are to whatever extent that you're capable. And at the same time, you reenact the basic form of the dualistic conversation between the enlightened essence nature and yourself. So this gets a little bit esoteric, but this alive aware reality, which is one is throwing out or emitting or giving rise to innumerable experiences of self and other. So all of reality of manifest reality in Trika is called a city. S-I-D-H-I or? C-I-T-Y. C-I-T-Y, okay. A city. So this is like the grand city of manifest life where you go, or you could say where God goes to experience meeting all the diverse manifestations of which God is capable. So it's this incredible conversation that's happening throughout manifest life. And satsang is mirroring that or echoing that or giving us a chance to enter into that. So it's in the form of call and response, just like everything else here is a conversation. Questions are being asked and answered. Generally, students ask questions of the teacher and the teacher answers. And then there's call and response singing, kirtan. So this is a practice that is like a microcosm of what's happening in all of life. Uh, Nanamaima only taught in satsang pretty much the only written encounter one can have with her is through the people who wrote down her satsangs, the conversations that she had with thousands and thousands of people. And listening to her in satsang and audio recordings and reading her satsangs, I just completely fell in love with this way of being with students. And I just started doing satsang. And at first, people just really didn't know what to make of it. They would kind of sit there like little nervous. <laughs> it's very informal. It's very intimate. Sort of anything goes. Eventually, though, now the students that have been doing satsang with our community for a long time, you know, that they really understand the richness of it and how beautiful it is. Ma compared satsang to water dripping on a stone. She said, you know, it is spiritual practice, but It's slow, but like water dripping on a stone, eventually the water will go through. You know, eventually you'll recognize who you really are. Yeah, look at the Grand Canyon. Yeah, that's what your podcast is, essentially, is just recordings of your satsangs. And each one is on a different topic, or sometimes one of them is on several topics. 
And so people could find a link to subscribe to your podcast on your website. Mm -hmm. Do you do these podcasts on Zoom now so that people can participate all, all over the place? Yeah, we don't do pod the podcasts are just uh, not the podcasts, but, but the satsangs. Yeah, the satsangs. Yeah, we do. Uh right now we're doing them two days a week. So on Sunday afternoons at three thirty and Thursday evenings at six thirty PM Pacific time. People can get the Zoom link by joining a Facebook group called Jayakula News. So we don't publish that link publicly. You have to join the Facebook group okay. in order to get the link. Make sure I have uh, that link so I can put it on your BatGap sure. page so then people can go there and join it if sure. they want to. Going down your list here. A lot of these are questions that everybody's heard a million times, but I'm liking your answers to them. What is self-realization? It's really very, very simple, although the words will not mean anything until you start to enter into a direct experience. But self-realization just means knowing the nature of reality. And that the nature of reality is the same as the nature of yourself. That's really all very, very simple. Sanyas and leading an improvisational life. So sanyas is an ancient tradition from India where people renounced in various ways. And some of them are wanderers, you know, not staying in one place for very long. The type of sannyas that I've taken really doesn't have much to do with those external forms. It has to do with renouncing or living without view. So we all have these views of everything, even spiritual views of things. And from the perspective of the ultimate teaching of Ma about sannyas is that we would be in life, in an utter a state of utter spontaneity with no view, simply responding and being embodying those wisdom virtues and responding spontaneously. She called this spontaneousness kayal, which is a Sanskrit or maybe it's a Hindi word, I'm not sure, word that means improvisational music. She said she never did anything other than via kayal and that she was just moved by reality to do or not do, to say or not say. And in this way, she lived her life. What do you make of the Osho people calling themselves sannyasis? Uh, I don't have any view on that. <laughs> speaking of no view, I don't know much about it. <laughs> oh, but you're right up there in Oregon, aren't you? I've seen that documentary. It didn't really occur to me to ask why they were, or if they were sannyasins. I mean, there's, many, many different forms of sannyas all over the world. Ma just talked about natural versus more ordinary sannyas. You could take vows and whatever, put on robes, but you might not have natural sannyas. Or you could have natural sannyas, but not be wearing robes or doing anything. There was one of your podcasts that particularly interested me. I can remember exactly where I was riding my bicycle while listening to it. It was a discussion of Vedanta versus Kashmir Shaivism. And mm -hmm. I thought maybe we could get into that a little bit. What did I say? Um, <laughs> you were talking about Vedanta being kind of emphatic about the illusory nature of the world, the non-existence really of the world, whereas Kashmir Shaivism gives greater respect and credence to mm -hmm. the creative play and display, you could say, of, of creative intelligence. You were favoring the latter. 
kind of well, evoke it's probably interesting talking thoughts about Advaita Vedanta, which yeah, is a little later okay. tradition. Because the you Vedas, were. if we were going to call something Vedanta from the Vedas, they are more similar to Trika than Advaita Vedanta, which is a later take on Vedanta, let's just say. And Advaita Vedanta has many, many different forms, just like the Tantric traditions do. But in general, tends to be more transcendental than the Tantric traditions or than Trika in particular, in that there's some idea that even though it's supposedly a non-dual tradition, there's still this denigration of ordinary lived experience and ordinary bodies and ordinary life. So Abhinavagupta wrote about this kind of humorously. You know, he was talking specifically about Advaita Vedanta. If you say there are certain things that are real and other things that are illusory, then you're already being a dualistic tradition. You've already fallen off your non-dual horse. What Trika says is that we have limited wisdom or less limited wisdom. So it says that everything that's happening here is real and nothing could be unreal, that the unreal does not exist, which makes a certain kind of sense. If we have a limited understanding of something, that's still a real experience of limitation. And then we enter into a less limited experience when we do practice or some other thing happens to us. So this idea of illusion doesn't really play out in Trika the way that it does in a lot of versions of Advaita Vedanta. Yeah, that's what you said. But as you were saying it, I was thinking of that Gita verse, which says the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. So it's like, it, it's unreal. Therefore, it actually doesn't have any being. And all there is is the real. If it doesn't have any being, then why are we talking about it? What are we talking about, I guess I would say? Well, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, Advaita Vedanta yeah. uses examples like the rope and the snake and so on. And there never was any snake. It just seemed to be one. Well, what Trika would say is that we had a real experience of a snake. And then we had a real experience of a rope. But that everything happening here is an experience. It's yeah. an experience of the nature of the self for the self to enjoy. So ontologically, in terms of the nature of its existence, there's no difference between a mistaken experience of seeing a snake versus an experience of seeing a rope. They have total equality on the level of their ontological significance. But really, is there no difference? Well, there is a difference. There's a difference. In fact, each of those experiences is completely unique. If I see a snake, it's a unique experience. If I see a rope, it's a different unique experience. But on the level of what they actually are, those experiences, they're both made of what I would call Shiva nature. They're both made of the intelligence and wisdom of that one reality. On that level, they have equality. They don't have non-difference on the experiential level. They have glorious difference on the experiential level, but on the level of what they actually are, they have equality. I think I understand that. I guess I would say the experience of the snake, it's definitely an experience, but it's a mistaken view of what's actually going on because it really actually is only a rope. And so if you kind of see the rope as a rope, then you're having a clearer view of what you're looking at. Would you agree well, with that? Well, what, what I would say is you don't exist in the way you think you do. 
And only this one reality is having a funny experience of seeing a snake and enjoying that and enjoying the mistake and also enjoying discovering the rope equally. Yeah, that's good too. I'm not even sure. I I guess as I was listening to this, I was trying to think maybe these two things are more reconciled than one might think because I hear Advaita Vedanta teachers sometimes talking that way too. Yeah, Um, I think that there are Advaita Vedanta teachers who are much more sophisticated than the cartoony version, for instance, that Abhinavagupta was making fun of. So I think that's very important to say. Yeah, I study a lot with Swami Sarvapriyananda, and I really appreciate his nuanced and respectful view of of all these things. So the word illusion itself doesn't, I think, mean non-existent or unreal to every Advaita Vedanta teacher. Yeah, it's more like misperception. Yeah, misperception, yes. Right. And then I guess the question is, well, is there really a world or not? You know, which is like saying, is there, was there ever a snake or not? And then you have things like the Mandukya Upanishad, which say, no, nothing ever happened. It's, it's a total misperception. Trika would say, no, nothing happened, but it's glorious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, if this is an illusion, like, holy cow, what an amazing illusion. I mean, look at a, a single cell <laughs> under a microscope and watch what's going on in it. What a show. Well, what I like to say is this is what God does. Yeah, yeah. This is this quote-unquote illusion or this magical display, they would say in Dzogchen, is the life process of God. And it's here to enjoy once we start recognizing its real nature. Yeah, I really feel that myself. I I just feel like sometimes Advaita is too dismissive of Mm -hmm. the marvel of God's... Well, that's part of its transcendentalism and also the effects of patriarchy on traditions Mm. where bodies and earth and things associated with the female are denigrated. Yeah. Could also be the fact that they didn't have dental care in ancient India or many of the other things that made life tolerable. (laughs) (laughs) And you just wanted to get out of here as soon as possible. (laughs) They had some guy down by the river who could pull your teeth out. Yeah, right. For only 10 rupees. (laughs) Let's see here. I've probably said this quote 20, 30 times on this show, but there's a quote that's attributed to Padmasambhava, which I heard, which was that although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. And I thought I'd bounce that off you because to me is important. It's, it's, it has a lot to do with the ethical stuff that you and I were talking about before we started. And, um, that you don't get a pass if your cosmic is all get out. There still has to be an impeccability in your behavior and an attentiveness to that. You can't just do any old thing and say, well, it's only God doing it, which some people mm-hmm. have used as an alibi. I think I relate that quote to us as practitioners and students, that we have this bigger view of or what we could say of the absolute, but Our actual lives are the material we have to work with. We are given these lives with all their fine green and some less pleasant green than others. This is the material that we're working with that helps us to discover the nature of things. So if we bypass this, we really don't have a practice. As Abhinavagupta says, We find Shiva in Shakti, meaning we find the nature of things in our lived experience. In other words, the divine is imminent to everyday life or imminent to everything that's happening. And so if we try to bypass this, 
then we have no spiritual life. We have no practice, really. That's going to help us at least to get to some version of self-realization that's prevalent in the traditions I've practiced in. That's really good. Some people like to say the world is my guru, meaning that there is evolutionary potential and significance in everything that happens to us and guidance if we can discern it mm-hmm. and, and follow it. Sure. Um, that things aren't happening arbitrarily and accidentally and capriciously and meaninglessly, that there's some wisdom in every little leaf that falls. That you know. There's wisdom in everything, but it's also playing. So it's not necessarily that everything has meaning and is heading somewhere important. <laughs> why did that leaf fall (laughs) it's really a lot of it's like hijinks yeah that's true i mean watch a discovery channel documentary about some of these goofy animals and the way they carry on these funny birds Mm -hmm. and the things they do it's like god has a sense of humor (laughs) absolutely Uh, that's one of the things you can discover that's everywhere the sense of humor and a sense of drama you Mm -hmm. could say if you think of God as a playwright, all the dramas, and they're not just comedies, there's tragedies That's and right. comedies and, and just master playwright writing the script. Have you noticed, especially in the last couple of years, perhaps even in your own sangha, a kind of an infiltration of what is called conspirituality, where people have kind of gotten sucked into conspiracy theories like QAnon, perhaps swung to right-wing politics or any of that kind of stuff? I've noticed it in some people I know, but I have never had a student who was into that stuff. Good. And well, they, if have I good have, they have a good teacher. <laughs> if, if I have, they left so quickly that no one ever noticed. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Ma just weeds people out who don't really belong with a teacher like myself. And I think that I'm so sober and allergic to that kind of stuff that some they would just, they wouldn't last long. They wouldn't enjoy themselves. <laughs> yeah. Maybe <laughs> that's what go ahead. I have known some people who have gone that route. Maybe that's what's happening, some kind of weeding out process, because there have been dozens and dozens of articles about this phenomenon where kind of new age and wellness community and spiritual communities and so on. Many people like in friends in Sedona told me that about seventy five percent of the people down there at one point were into QAnon. Donald Trump and, and the whole mm-hmm. thing. Where and, I encountered uh, it most disturbingly was around the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. With like lots of magical thinking about being protected from COVID without being vaccinated or right. wearing a mask or whatever. Yeah, that's why I said the last couple of years, the pandemic seemed to kick this into high gear. Yeah, absolutely. People want to feel safe, but they also want to feel like they're in charge. Those two things don't always go together. (laughs) And what I distilled from all this, and I gave a lot of attention to it for a while, is that the development of critical thinking skills is a really valuable tool on the spiritual path. I agree with that. And clarity is one of the qualities of reality. So we're moving in that direction by thinking more clearly. All right, we have a little bit of time left. Is there anything that comes to your mind that you're going to wish we had covered if we don't? I guess I would just say in terms of the round world that anything you can imagine from whatever vantage point you're at right now, I don't mean you, I just mean anyone listening or anyone who will listen. And remind us what you mean by round world, just so people, fresh people's memory. By the round world, I mean 
the world as seen with more depth and nuance than we normally experience it with. Right. The world that includes many other kinds of beings, ancestors, animism, animism, magic, or whatever you think the fruits of practice are. You cannot imagine that or decide that in advance. You can only know that by walking the path and discovering how things are. Anything that you think about things is possibly going to be an obstacle on your path. For myself personally, every important thing that has ever happened to me spiritually was a surprise. Not anything that I read in a book or things teachers told me, everything was a surprise that was of any significance at all. So really it's, you get there, you you get there by getting there, not by projecting or having expectations. And the excitement and the adventure of spiritual practices in that process of being taken by wisdom. Yeah. And on the one hand, you know, we read inspiring books about enlightened people and all that stuff. And we get a sense of it might be quite different when we actually realize it ourselves Mm -hmm. than what our concept was, but at least we have a sense that, well, there's something really great. I Mm -hmm. should aspire for that. A classic example of this was there was this woman named, um, she wrote a book called Collision with the Infinite. What was her name? It might come to me, but in any case, she had been an ardent meditation practitioner and so on and uh, studied all this business. And then she kind of drifted away a little bit and she was married and pregnant and just coming back from a swimming session in Paris and getting on a bus. And all of a sudden, boom, she had this big shift and she couldn't locate a sense of personal self. And it told Suzanne Siegel, that's right. And it totally freaked her out. And she spent 10 years being totally freaked out in this state where she couldn't, she's desperately trying to find the personal self. And finally, she met Jean Klein, the teacher, and he said, stop looking for it, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. relax, this is good. And she relaxed into it. And then, ah, yes. And she then later realized this is exactly what her teacher had been talking about. But the reality of the experience had been so different than her conception of it that mm-hmm. she didn't put two and two together. Yeah, I mean, I love reading books about other practitioners for many, many, many years. And that's wonderful as long as you don't get attached to having experiences. Yeah, but just the inspiration that you know there's more to life than you are living. And you ought to apply yourself to discovering what it might be without being really rigid about what it's going to be. Absolutely. Yeah, you need that inspiration. I agree. Good. Well, that's a good note to end on. (laughs) Um, Well, I really appreciated this. I hope I didn't talk too much. I I tend to get a little talky and I really loved what you have had to say and really enjoyed listening to your podcasts throughout the week. Thank you so much. And I'll link to all that stuff on your page that I'll put up about this interview on BatGap so people can hop from there to your websites. And uh, don't forget to give me that Facebook link where they can join that group. Well, thanks so much for having me, Rick. It was really fun. Yeah, it really was. We'll be in touch. Okay, lots of love, everybody. Okay, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Next week, I'll be interviewing a Dr. Penny Sartori. She'll be talking about near-death experiences, which we oh, alluded to today. Oh, good for that person who asked the question. Talk to you later. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye.